This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back tomorrow for Free For All Friday. Real estate is a hot topic these days for Zoomers. Many older people are selling and downsizing, but they also have adult children who are trying to buy homes, which is extra challenging these days with multiple bidding situations and record high prices. We found out earlier this week the provincial PCs at Queen's Park are implementing a change to the bidding process that will allow property and disclose the details of competing offers. Right now, prospective buyers looking to put an offer on a home do so blindly without knowing how much their competitors are offering above the asking price. To talk about this change, which is optional, by the way, and other regulatory changes to how real estate is conducted in Ontario, we are joined by Kevin Krigger, realtor and president of Regional Real Estate Board, and Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. Hi to you both. Good afternoon. Hello. And I do want to hear from you, our Zoomer radio listeners as well. If you are selling or buying or you've had a recent real estate experience, numbers to call 416-360-0740-1866-740-4740. Tim, I'll start with you since you say you've been calling for these reforms. How will these changes reform the system for the better? And are they all you've called for? Um, well, there's more to do, uh, Jane, for sure, but these were important steps forward. And, and, and Kevin, as an experienced real estate professional, I'll have him talk about the offer process a bit. So I'll tell you a bit more about the entire package. You know, what, you know, the Real Estate Board from Ontario and, and Toronto called for uh, was to raise the bar when it comes to professional standards. We want to make sure that realtor at your side, when you're making the biggest, you know, financial decision of your life, is a North American leader in professional standards. So some of the things the government did with their announcement uh, this week, Jane, uh, tougher disciplinary procedures. And if we see a, a realtor who breaks the rules or takes advantage of somebody, we don't want to slap on the wrist. We want a suspension or take away their license altogether. This will also give the regulator a greater ability to investigate things that don't look right to make sure consumers are protected. Those are major steps forward. There will be a brand new code of ethics as well that will establish North American leading professional standards. Also great for buyers and sellers. And of course, as you mentioned, you know, more transparency in your real estate exchange that that Kevin can tell you more about. Uh, Tim, how much of a problem uh, has there been around real estate agents not being ethical? Well, anytime there is a single example uh, of this, and nothing makes a hardworking realtor more angry when they hear a story about somebody who does not follow the rules. And we do have a regulator called the Real Estate Council of Ontario that investigates these complaints. But we said, you know what, we want greater authority for them to do a number of things. Refuse licenses to begin with, to suspend licenses for bad behavior, or revoke them altogether. I'll give you an example. Under the previous law, you could actually have a fraud conviction against you, but still be cleared by the regulator. We thought that was ridiculous. So this gives them the power now to stop those folks in the profession and raise the bar altogether. Kevin, let's go over to you. Uh, your reaction to the changes uh, that are coming as well, some of them not until this time next year. Well, I think from the perspective of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board, we certainly applaud the provincial government. Our act has been in place since 2002, and I don't think anyone would argue that life has changed substantially, um, as has innovation and technology in many areas. But our act still had prohibitions on a number of things. So as a licensed real estate professional, I cannot disclose the contents of an offer currently. And I think certainly providing optionality and the option for a more open and transparent process is a good thing. I think modernizing the act and sort of reflecting the realities of today is incredibly important. 
And I think this will provide additional tools to those involved in a real estate transaction, as well as the people advising them. Um, it, it provides additional optionality and things that we can bring to the table in terms of process. Uh, Kevin, how effective is the change uh, if it is optional for the seller to enact a transparent bidding process? In other words, what's in it for the seller to be transparent? Well, the sellers are often buyers as well. And, you know, they've experienced it. Their children have experienced it as they're trying to buy a home. So I, I think there's diverging opinions, certainly, on what the best ultimate process is. And I think it's unique to each circumstance. But I think having the option for a more transparent process certainly is something that many sellers will ultimately see as beneficial. But I think the, I guess, important context around this open process, I think the goal certainly of many and of government is a belief that a more open process ultimately will lead to lower prices. I personally don't believe that to be true, and we try to market, which is obviously a longer conversation, and from a political perspective, certainly will take more time to see the influence of. But I think providing the option of an open process is something that will definitely get uptake in the market. So paint a picture for us then, until now, and anyone who's been involved in buying and selling in Toronto specifically uh, has been through this multiple bidding process. So we know what it has been like up until now, uh, where um, various real estate agents and their clients are offering on, you know, on paper to the seller their bids. What will it look like in a transparent situation? So there's still some definition as to what the end process will look like. But generally speaking, it will provide the ability to disclose the terms of the offer. So price as well as other elements of the offer. The only thing that will be prohibitive from being disclosed is anything that's identifying as it relates to the buyer. So any sort of personal information of the buyer, but everyone will understand sort of what the price is, potentially closing date, deposit, and various terms of the offer, which will then allow them to sort of see where their offer sits in the overall process. So does that give the buyer an opportunity then, uh, say there are five offers, do each of the five um, prospective buyers get to see each other's offers and then revise them accordingly? Like, how will that work? So because there's nothing sort of laid out in, in terms of how the actual process will run, I would estimate, based on my experience in being involved in offer processes, is that likely the offers will be submitted. As they come in, the price and terms will be disclosed to all parties submitting offers. And then, yes, likely there will be an opportunity to improve in the same way you would see in a sort of more open process where, you know, someone will increase their price by 2000 someone else may increase by 3 and ultimately it'll go likely in smaller tranches and it'll likely be more round. Um, but it would give you the opportunity in real time to see what the offer you're competing against, whatever the highest and best offer is, um, you would understand what those terms are. Let's talk about what's happened during the pandemic and even prior to that when house prices started rising very quickly and routinely. Uh, Tim, your thoughts on what has happened in the Toronto real estate market specifically? I know you speak on behalf of all of Ontario, but all of the markets in Ontario prices have risen to a point where, especially in the GTA, young people in their 20s and 30s, they can't afford a $1.5, $1.7 million house. That's what we work on every day. I mean, Kevin can give you a better uh, read on the Toronto region. I can talk province-wide here, yes. but you're absolutely right. The you know, that great Canadian dream that if you you work hard, you get a degree, you get a good job, and you save up every dollar you can, then you could afford a home to raise your family is slipping away for far, far too many Canadians. We've seen rapid increases in prices pretty well in every corner of the province. And, look, I come from a small town in Niagara, and every one of my neighbors I grew up with would have thought we could afford a home in the neighborhood we grew up in. Mm -hmm. And that is slipping away. You asked me earlier, Jane, what is missing we do need to see a greater focus on supply, getting more homes in the marketplace people can't afford. Now, that would be starter homes, right, for the first-time buyer, move-up homes when the kids come along, you need more space, and rentals. 
as well as for, you know, seniors who want to stay close to the grandkids of the community, but want to move out of the family home as empty nesters. Like those are the real key areas. And if we do that, more choice in marketplace like that, that means those keys will get closer to hand for that aspiring family. That's the way to solve the affordability crisis. Okay, I do want to go to the phones now. Our Zoomer radio listeners want to get in in the conversation. And I'm not surprised because the Zoomer demographic, are they can see the picture from both sides, right? A lot of people in their late 50s through to their 80s maybe are downsizing. I mean, I know and I know and appreciate a lot of people want to stay in their homes as long as they can. But there is the downsizing factor. And then they have adult children in their late 20s, early 30s who are trying to cobble together a 20% down payment on a $1.5 million home. And the vast, vast majority of people just simply don't have the incomes to do that. So that's where mom and dad come in sometimes, too, to pay forward um, the the benefits that the children will get way down the road uh, once we die. Give them some of the money now so that they can use it to buy a home. Uh, let's go to Paul in Woodstock. Paul, go ahead. Hello? Yes, Paul. What, do you, what would you like to add? Okay, I'm just going to pull over here. I don't believe the changes they have made is going to benefit anybody because the job of the real estate agent is to earn as much money as they possibly can for their firm. This bidding thing is absolutely wrong. If you want $200,000 for your house and you get an offer for $200,000, that should be it. The first offer should be dealt with like it used to be years ago. And then when it, 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 when they couldn't come to an agreement, then you dealt with the next offer. Because right now what they're doing is, is forcing people into a panic situation where they're not thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. You could not do this on a car lot or any place else. I, I believe the government should show a little bit of backbone and step up to the plate and say, you ask what you want. If you get what you ask for, then it's sold. You don't auction something off the way they do. It's absolutely wrong and it's immoral as far as I'm concerned. I had a situation where my son put in an offer on a house. And the real estate agent called back and said, we have another offer. Would you like to put in another offer? And my son was going to. And I said, no, we're not going to get into this game. And then I found out later on, his offer was $5,000 more than the offer they had to take. Yeah. So, again, they're forcing people into a panic situation where they're not making rational decisions. And, and, and the real estate board knows this. They can give all the excuses they want in the world, but what you're doing is absolutely wrong. You ask the price, that's what you want. If you get it, it's sold. You deal with one offer at a time. All right, Paul, I take your point. I get it. I hear you. And uh, you share the opinion of many people out there. Again, the number is 416-360-0740-1866-740-4740. Kevin, since you are a real estate agent, let me put uh, that caller's comments to you for a response. Most definitely. And I certainly appreciate the sentiment. You know, the market is obviously incredibly challenging for anyone getting in. So it's a conversation that I have with clients on a regular basis. But I think there's an important thing to also understand in terms of the role of the realtor. We ultimately have a fiduciary obligation to the client we're working for. So for my seller client, when I meet with them, I walk through the property, I evaluate the home, I look at comparable solds, how their property relates two properties that have most recently sold, where there's opportunities to improve the property via staging or modest repairs. And ultimately, what I'm hired to do is achieve the highest and best possible price for that seller client. So when I'm representing a seller, that's my obligation to them. When I'm representing a buyer, and again, in the market we're currently in, it definitely is a market that favors the seller. There's an imbalance of inventory We basically have among the lowest levels of inventory we've seen, certainly in my career. Mm -hmm. And when I'm working with a buyer, my obligation ultimately is to provide them with advice and guidance throughout the process and also look at, you know, the properties that we're viewing. And just because the property is listed for X doesn't necessarily mean it's going to transact for X. So that's also where as we're viewing properties and providing advice and guidance, 
we're ultimately giving feedback on what the market value of that home is based on our review of comparable sold. In an upwardly moving market, and we've seen price increases that have pushed well over 20% over the course of this past year, with a market moving upward, it's obviously challenging on both ends of the equation, but ensuring that we have the same fiduciary obligation to buyers who we represent as buyer clients, you know, we are providing advice and guidance through that process and also educating them around what the process looks like. So, you know, there are many times where I get calls from clients and they see something online that's listed for five ninety nine, and they say, "Well, you know, my budget's six hundred. This is within my budget." But looking at sales and where the market's moved in that area, the likelihood of it selling within their budget range is not very good. So that's where we provide advice and guidance through that process to educate them around value, but also around strategy. Well, and let's okay, let's talk about strategy because I've been involved in buyer and seller situations in Toronto with multiple offers on both sides. And I, I, there is game playing involved. When I listed my house off the Danforth in 2011, my agent advised me to price it low so that I would get multiple offers. So what my home was priced for was ultimately uh, much lower than what it ended up going for. So, Kevin, that is a game that has become very much entrenched in the Toronto real estate uh, mindset. Well, I would agree on sort of a, a neighborhood basis. It, it changes based on sort of price point and location to some degree as well. But really, as your representative, so the agent that you worked with, had an obligation to you to ultimately present options. So they said, you know, based on my review of market activity, here's what I feel your home's worth in order to achieve the highest and best value for you as the, my seller client. You know, I suggest staging, painting, minor modifications, some upgrades to your landscaping, whatever that sort of scope of services was. And they presented options to you. And one of the options they presented in your case was to list on the lower side of value in the interest of ultimately getting a high volume of activity through your home and ultimately selling for the highest possible value. Right. So great, great for the seller, but not for the 10 people who are bidding on the home. And Tim, it used to be, and I'm speaking with, uh, that was Kevin Krieger there, realtor and president of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board, Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. Tim, it used to be decades ago that a home was priced at the value you know, at the price that that, uh, the seller wanted to sell it at. When did that change, and how did we get into this game-playing scenario? Um, I think Kevin Kevin gave a good perspective on, you know, how that decision-making takes place with the home seller. But to to your question and and to Paul's, the real issue here is to treat the core problem as opposed to symptoms of the problem. The core problem is years ago, we were building as many houses as we had demand. So you got that job and saved up a few bucks, you could you could afford a home. And if you didn't win it, well, there's another one down the street. Jane, we actually built fewer homes in the last 10, 20 years than we did the 1970s, right? With more population. So no wonder we've got this vicious game of musical chairs with more buyers and fewer sellers. The solution here is actually get more homes in the market that people can afford. And there's been all kinds of ideas laid out. Mm. I'm happy to get into them. At the end of the day, you also have to realize that do you really want the government putting all kinds of rules on how you're going to sell your home? That home is not owned by the government. It's not an empty building. It's usually somebody like my mom, a retiree, who decided to sell the family home after my, my father passed away because she wants to have a dignified retirement. Or it might be a family that wants to get a larger home because they've got kids. So we have to be very careful with the government telling you you have to take the first price for what you listed at. I don't think that's going to solve the problem. What the Ford government did here is offered a choice, a new transparent model that buyers and sellers can opt into. Leave that decision on how you sell your home with a person that owns it, not with the government. All right, let's go back to the phones. Uh, Joanna in Schaumburg. Uh, Joanna, hi, welcome to Fight Back. Uh, you have a story for us? I do, thank you. Um, I bought a cottage last summer, and I don't know how many offers went in on it. Actually, I do. I think there were six offers and my realtor said, raise your price 
uh, for 2% for every offer that went in. So we went in high and then the owner came back and said, uh, can you raise your offer just a little bit more? So I don't know, like I would have liked to have seen, you know, what the other offers were. Right, right. Right? And was I giving the highest offer or was she just asking for more money, right? So you like the idea of the transparent bidding. Absolutely. And yet it's optional for the seller, which, you know, and I'm skeptical of of how many sellers are actually going to to enact a transparent bidding process. Well, I, I can... I can respond to that okay. um, in terms of how many, and I, and I totally get it. I mean, Debbie and I were, <laughs> my wife and I were on the, the same side where you have that dream home that you want to have and you picture where the crib's going to go and where the kids can play down the road in the backyard and you lose an offer and you look to the next one. I totally sympathize. And again, it's funny to focus on more supply, but with respect to the new system, I do think people are going to take this up. And Kevin laid out earlier on why it has not been possible because the government had rules to protect personal privacy probably next to our health information, financial information we hold most dear. So not everybody is going to be comfortable telling a bunch of strangers how much they can spend on a home, how much they can afford for deposit. Do they have to sell their house? You know, uh, what is a closing date? This will allow people to opt in. But the reason, Jan, I think some people will take this is because in other countries that Kevin named earlier, you know, in Australia, New Zealand, for example, they do have a system where offers are shared, at least at the price level. But let's not make a mistake here. That tends to get auction fever where they outbid each other, they get carried away. It's been shown that it actually probably drives up prices a bit higher. It is more transparent. The risk is prices go higher. That's why you should opt into that process. And there are some models that will do this in Ontario. I would say if you do those models, just make sure they're regulated by, by RICO, Real Estate Council of Ontario, that they're done by those who have licenses that are repercussions. Right now, there's some auctioneers that are kind of wild west. There's no regulation. There's no investigation. They don't have to tell you exactly who they are, if they have any history around fraud, for example. So if you do that, just be careful who you're working with, if they're actually licensed by RICO. Kevin, I want to ask you a question specific to the Toronto market. I've become familiar with this House Sigma concept because my stepson has been going through the process of trying to buy a home. Happy to say he he finally got one the other night after many multiple bidding situations. So this House Sigma, the way I understand it, the home is listed at whatever price the, the seller and their realtor decide on. But House Sigma tells you that the home, for example, is worth 300000 more than that. What is that concept all about? So House Sigma is a real estate brokerage that also sort of has a a platform, as do a a number of brokerages. So I'll, I'll speak more to the type of platform. So when you see these estimates, and there's similar models in the United States as well, it's basically an AVM. So it's an automated valuation model. So effectively, what it does is extrapolates data, puts it into a logarithm, and based on a number of factors, and each one sort of utilizes different elements of the data set to create a a computer-generated valuation of the Mm -hmm. property. So there's a lot of nuance that can be missed, certainly, in an ABM. It doesn't look at you know, the overall condition of the home. It doesn't look at a lot of things, you know, where it's positioned on a street. It just looks more at the metrics of number of bedrooms, sizes, all of those sorts of things, and creates a, an estimation of value. Okay, I'm going to go back to the phones before I get your final comments. This half hour has gone by far too quickly. Uh, Linda in Scarborough, go ahead. You're on Fight Back. Oh, hi. Yes. Um, I first of all want to say that I agree with your previous caller about the government needing to um, uh, do have more regulations. Uh, my comment really is about the commission that uh, the realtors are earning now. I have a, a daughter-in-law who's a realtor, and I've said the same thing to her. Um, now it takes just a matter of days for a house to be sold, and that realtor will have a commission, um, you know, for something that may have sold for over a million dollars compared to many, many years ago when it may have taken months and months to have sold a house and and for a much lower price. It just to me it just seems to be um 
way too much commission. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Linda. Thanks for calling. Let's go to Alex in Curtis. Alex, what would you like to add? Uh, I just have a comment, uh, as I mentioned to the, the nice man there that I was speaking to. Uh, first would be the, uh, the fact that the uh, spiraling uh, to buy a home these days, um, people aren't talking a lot about MPAC's role evaluating these homes. At some point, perhaps, uh, MPAC will look at a home that's sold for eight and 900000 that is only evaluated at four hundred at the moment, and tax bills will spiral. And I understand, like, if you think about the taxes, uh, the value on the home, about 1% of the value that MPAC puts on it, we can reflect your taxes out mm-hmm. our way here. Mm-hmm. I know they're a little cheaper in Toronto. So that was one of the points I'd like to make. I mean, if tax bills and towns want to gather up some more money, they'll get MPAC working on these uh, agents. I don't know the last caller to that. I'm not sure why it's kind of condoned that agents can speak about um, uh, the fact that homes are selling like much, much, much higher than the asking price. Now, it's understood that you have to go in higher than the asking price. Yes. So it becomes essentially a, a, an auction. Yeah. So no, Alex, it's, it's far from a, a good scenario right now. And I thank you for your comments. Uh, one more call here before we get final comments from our guests. Aga, go ahead. Thanks. Uh, we don't want the government to say how much we sell our home for, but the change that they made, it should be transparent for all sellers so buyers know what they're getting into. So they're not bidding higher than a 1000 maybe 2000 instead of 5 and onward. My son bought a townhouse last two weeks, and starting from 550 it reached all the way up to 800 This is a townhouse, not a detached or fully yeah. detached. Yeah, thank almost you. almost 50% more uh, yeah. than the asking. Okay, thank you, Sita. So um, my guests, Tim Hudak, uh, Kevin Krieger, you've heard uh, from some of the frustration that's out there, um, primarily amongst buyers or the parents of buyers. Uh, final comments before we wrap, uh, Kevin. Well, I certainly understand the frustration. And I guess sort of furthering what Tim said, the conversation always sort of comes back to regulating or providing additional regulation to the actual process. Fundamentally, for the last 10 years, the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board has been calling for greater supply in our market. So we've recognized that we have a growing population, we have migration within the country, and they're generally centering around the greater Toronto area. There's nowhere near enough homes being built on an annual basis and homes being both homes, townhomes, condos, the the whole range of inventory options. And instead of really making fundamental change on the supply side, there have been sort of modest changes to demand-driven policies. So things like a foreign buyer tax in Ontario specifically has proven completely ineffective. Really, unless the government does something substantial, like eliminating exclusionary zoning, for example, where 70 to 75% of our neighborhoods are zoned exclusively for single-family homes, the reality is in growing cities, and obviously you don't want a one-size-fits-all approach for the entire province, Mm -hmm. but looking specifically in Toronto, inventory is needed, and there's opportunity to bring gentle intensification into neighborhoods with duplex, triplex, fourplex, those are the things that fundamentally will make change in overall value because it addresses the incredible need for supply. Tim? Uh- yeah, I mean, I had the, the, the honor of spending 21 years in, in public life in the Ontario legislature. And you know, one lesson I take away is it's important to treat the core problem and not the symptoms of the problem. Kevin expressed what the core is. We need more inventory. We need more supply in the marketplace. And until we do that, we're going to have an affordability crisis. It takes courage, but options are on the table. The announcement this past week was helpful because it raises the bar on professionalism, you know, more discipline and more transparency. And on the offer process, you know, I think it is very important to give people a choice. I don't want, as a buyer, my personal financial information shared with a bunch of strangers uh, across the table. If I choose to do so, let me. And if I'm a homeowner... I don't think the government should be telling me how I sell my home. It is an important part of my future retirement or investment, particularly from a 
uh, listeners on Zoomer. So give people a choice. They'll make wise decisions. But don't put us on a one-size straitjacket. It will drive up prices even higher. Thank you both for your comments and for the conversation. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Tim Hudak is CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. Realtor Kevin Krigger is president of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is back tomorrow, which is not only free for all Friday, it is Earth Day. And the theme of Earth Day 2022 is invest in our planet. What will you do as an individual or as a company? And with that question, we'll open the phone lines 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744-740. We have an esteemed panel joining us to talk about climate change and investing in the environment in our own backyard here in Ontario. Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Ontario Green Party and MPP for Guelph. David Crombie is the former mayor of Toronto and chair of Friends of the Golden Horseshoe. And Dr. Blair Feltmate is head of the Intact Centre for Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here. Hello, Hello. how are you, Jane? Dr. Feltmade, help us understand the state of the earth related to climate change and how desperate a situation we find ourselves in. Well, overall, the earth is heating up uh, due to the burning of fossil fuels. Over the period of the last 100 years or so, uh, the average uh, temperature on the planet is up about 1.1 degrees Celsius, which at first might not seem like a big deal. But when you consider that the difference between temperature on the planet today uh, versus an ice age is about four to six degrees Celsius, depending on where you set the stop and start dates, uh, being up 1.1 degrees Celsius in 100 years, directly attributable to the burning of fossil fuels, is uh, a pretty big deal. And uh, our trajectory in terms Mm -hmm. of uh, uh, continuing to pump CO2 emissions into the the air uh, continues. So... Uh, we, we have a real challenge in, in, uh, in, in that regard in trying to get greenhouse gas emissions down. The bottom line is climate change is effectively irreversible. It is here to stay, period. We can work to slow it down, uh, but we're not going to reverse it. So we also need to learn to adapt to the extreme weather risk that's, that's on our doorstep today. So if we were to carry on, Doctor, on the same path that we have been in the last 100 years, where would we be 100 years from now? Well, the three perils that are the most problematic for Canada at the moment, and even globally, quite frankly, uh, are uh, flood, fire, and extreme heat. We're getting more flooding uh, in Canada, and, and, and it's a phenomenon that's fairly regular globally now. Uh, we're getting uh, more water coming down over shorter periods of time, contributing to flooding. Uh, we're realizing uh, an exacerbation in reference to forest fires being more uh, problematic, uh, uh, both in Canada and across the planet. And the real code red, the, those, those first two factors, flooding and fire, when they occur, for example, in Canada, Generally speaking, nobody dies. It's maybe zero or one, two, three, maybe four people will die, which, of course, is four people too many. But the real code red is with extreme heat. When things go wrong relative to extreme heat, hundreds, if not thousands of people can die. So this is a a growing phenomenon, a growing challenge that we need to prepare for very, very rapidly is extreme heat. Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party. So what shape are we in in Ontario relative to other areas of the world? Well, unfortunately, uh, over the last four years in Ontario, we've had a government in place that has dismantled most of the climate action plans that were in place and have been the process of dismantling many of the environmental protections uh, that protect us from extreme weather events. I'm thinking especially flooding when you look at the changes that were made to the way in which conservation authorities can uh, use science and evidence-based decision-making to, to help mitigate flood risk. And then the other challenge we're facing is, is the current government is promoting a sprawl agenda through the building, especially of Highway 413, which would pave over 200 or 2,000 acres of farmland, 400 acres of the Greenbelt, 
destroy uh, 65 wetlands that protect us from flooding. And transportation emissions are the largest source of climate pollution in the province. So if we keep sprawling out, not only is it going to make life less affordable for us in terms of, you know, finding an affordable place to call home near where where you work, um, but it's also paving over nature's ability to protect us from flooding and extreme weather events, and it increases climate pollution from the transportation sector. And so, you know, we've got to reverse course and protect farmland, protect wetland, protect the green space that protect us from extreme weather events, and build communities that don't require long commutes and higher levels of pollution. Let's go over to David Crombie. Uh, Mike mentioned Highway 413. That is uh, a fight that you have been undertaking, spearheading an effort to stop Highway 413. What are your thoughts uh, as we approach Earth Day? Well, Mike clearly uh, pointed out what the uh, what the opportunities for change are, but certainly with 413, uh, it, it is a disaster by any standard, uh, any standard that that, uh, that involves our understanding of, of uh, the future of our environment, the future of farmland. Uh, farmland is being absolutely gobbled up uh, in the last while for through sprawl, and 413 is another example, a late example, almost uh, ahistorical because we thought we were by all of that, that we, that we are now creating highways that become sprawlways, places for, for residential development, and the building of housing, they don't call it that. They call it a highway, but it's really about building uh, new uh, residential, which is sprawl, which is uh, not sustainable in terms of the ecology or the economy or our financial ability to carry out municipal works. David, where are we at in terms of reversing course on Highway 413? Well, um, if, if in 2018, there was an independent study done and it rejected uh, the, the highway. That was, rejection was not accepted by the current government, and the current government is trying to build Fort 13 again. Um, there, there is an environmental study going on now that's looking at three different routes, uh, and indeed the federal government will also carry out its own environmental study uh, on, on it. Uh, from, from the point of view of those of us who've paid attention to Fort 13, no route is what we're looking for because uh, as Mike pointed out very well, and as, as the evidence that's around and the studies that have been done, this is a disaster for almost every angle you can think of, except for those who might benefit from the building of housing mm-hmm. along its route. So what needs to happen, David, um, in order for there to be no route? What are the various options? Uh, would voting out Doug Ford be option number one? <laughs> no, no. Well, I'm going to I'm going to stick to the policy issues, okay? Because the most important thing is to not build it, and so we simply have to decide to not build it. Now, there are the environmental studies being done. Maybe those could be used to dissuade the current government, but certainly, it doesn't. It almost doesn't matter to me and those of us who are really afraid of what will happen with Force 13. Uh, we don't care which government, but it, whatever government is office in office should not be building 413 for all the reasons that really good studies have shown over the years. So this is um, this is not politically dependent, the moving ahead with 413. So in other words, if the Liberals or the NDPs were to come to power on June 2nd, would, are they, uh, would they move forward on this 413? No, no. Actually, the Liberals and the, and the New Democratic Party and the Green Party uh, have all uh, uh, said clearly that they're opposed to 413. It's only the current government uh, that is, is, is holding on to a very bad idea. Okay, 416-360-0740, We need to take a break here in a moment, but just if you're just joining us, uh, that's David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto and chair of Friends of the Golden Horseshoe. Dr. Blair Feltmate is with us. He is the head of the Intact Center for Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo, and Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Ontario Green Party. And I want to hear more from Mike on the other side of the break as well in terms of 
of a strategy of the Green Party, uh, which is called a roadmap to net zero. Let's go to the phones. Pat in Toronto. Pat, would, uh, you always have uh, good conversation James, yes, points. And, go uh, ahead. <laughs> I, I have met the mayor. We sat beside each other on the subway a couple of years ago, uh, celebrating the fact that we were both on the subway the first day it opened. Uh, my main concern with all of what's going on is the breakdown in the democratic principles. We have these municipal zoning orders, which allows the minister to simply override what has been done at other levels of government. And it, it is truly, you know, a, a slippery slide down to having a dictatorship. And we can't allow these MZOs. And so many of them are going against the environmental issues. And I certainly I will be voting for the Green Party. Um, mind you, we, most of us listening to Zoomer Radio won't be around to see the mess that's going to result if we don't change. But we have to do what we can at this point in time. On that note, we will take a quick break. Back with your phone calls and our guests, 416-360-0740-1866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We are talking about the state of the earth and specifically here in Ontario ahead of tomorrow's Earth Day and uh, a good conversation point uh, which draws attention to uh, the need to preserve our environment is this plan for Highway 413. David Crombie is with us. He is the chair of Friends of the Golden Horseshoe. We also have a scientist with us, Dr. Blair Feltmate. And Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party. Uh, Mike, um, we heard from Pat there before the break, who plans to vote green in the June 2nd election. How big of an issue are you going to try to make Highway 413 uh, during this coming election campaign? Well, well, thanks to Pat. I certainly appreciate the support. And Jane, I just did another news conference yesterday opposing Highway 413 and offering a much more fiscally and responsible and less environmentally destructive alternative is to have uh, the province pay for a dedicated truck lane on Highway 407 that would cost about $260 million a year, substantially less than the 10-plus billion the Ford government wants to spend on Highway 413 that would significantly uh, and more quickly address the transportation challenges people are are facing uh, in the region because, as Dr. Feldmate said at the beginning, we are facing severe risks associated with extreme weather events, and in particular in Ontario, flooding, fire, and extreme heat. And the more we pave over the nature that um, protects us from flooding, protects us from uh, extreme heat events, uh, the harder it's going to be for us to adapt to climate and the more we're going to increase uh, emissions. And, and so, yes, we're going to make it a huge issue in the upcoming election. And I would add the Bradford Bypass, Holland Marsh Highway, another 400 series highway uh, that would pave over uh, significant wetlands um, and, um, and uh, threaten uh, Lake Simcoe as another part of this sprawl agenda that needs to be stopped. I mean, we need to, or Jane, we need to be going in the opposite direction. We need to be building communities where people can live, work, play, and shop locally, where we have gentle and missing middle density, where people are not forced into these expensive, soul-crushingly long commutes that put huge pressure on municipal budgets in terms of uh, servicing with infrastructure. Um, as I think David Crawford has pointed out in, in other uh, venues, that you know, we have about 88,000 acres of land uh, slated for development within our existing urban boundaries in the greater uh, Golden Horseshoe area. Let's develop on that land and let's stop this sprawl agenda. David, uh, add to what Mike is saying about that as an option. In, ter- in, in terms of, uh, I'm not, I'm not the sure land, you... the land that could be developed. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's, there's lots of land that has already been zoned for development throughout the greater uh, greater Toronto area uh, that has not yet been developed, which can be developed. Uh, That's that's a large large chunk of what can be done in terms of the provision of housing. There are also myriad other 
policies which have been put forward, um, which have been very good, that allows us to do what Mike was just talking about, and that is to build more compact communities. Uh, and, and, and there are many municipalities out there trying to do just that. Hamilton, Halton, two just recent uh, uh, lo- uh, local governments who, who decided that they want to make sure that they've got compact communities rather than sprawl communities. And the, and the current provincial government is fighting them on it. So Mike is absolutely right. Is there, is there an opportunity for land, land for development, for housing? There's lots of it. So the, the provincial government is getting away sometimes, shouldn't, by constantly saying that the reason they need more supply is they need more land, and that is simply not true. Do we need supply? You bet. Do we need to build residential? Yes, of course. But it should be the way Mike was describing it in terms of more compact communities. It is not only better for a lot of people, the way in which they live, but also it's better for the environment and the economy. I want to go back to Dr. Feltmade in just a moment here and talk about the cost of doing nothing. Uh, How much that will cost us as a people, as governments, if we continue on the path we're on. Back to the phones, though. Let's go to Debbie in Guelph. Debbie, your comments. Hi, um, exactly what they're talking about now about the uh, compact communities. Just I, I'm from Guelph. Hi to Mike uh, Schreiner. He's my man. Um, I was in Kitchener yesterday for some appointments, looked up a friend, visited her in a place that I had never been. Oh, we've lost somebody there. Was that oh, Debbie? Hello? Oh, we still have Debbie. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, visited this, um, it's called a townhouse. When I approached her door, there were four doors very close together in this, what looked like a big house, but it's all brand new, beautiful, you know, landscaped, lots of visitor parking. These four doors, I thought, how the heck does this work? She opened her door. We immediately went down a few stairs. She had windows that were, you know, open, even though her, her apartment was below. Um so the one beside her would have gone up some stairs. So these four units were very compact, very nice. It's only good for, um, like she's just, a, there's just the two of them. It wouldn't be good for a big family. It was one bedroom, bathroom, um, but really took up very little space. I grew up on a farm down in Essex County near Windsor. I, I hate seeing the farmland used up. I hate what they want to do in, um, uh, the, oh, lost the name of the place up near Barry. Right. It, uh, it's horrible. The Brad, the I think you're the, the Bradford bypass, Bradford. right? Yes, there we go. yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mike, back over to you, uh, one of your constituents there. Very nice. Um, explain to us a little bit about, uh, the roadmap to net zero that the Green Party has outlined, which it sounds like we'll be hearing a lot more in the next six weeks leading up to the election. Yeah, well, it's nice to have, have Debbie call in, Jane. And I mean, a big part of our plan is to stop the sprawl and to build more livable, affordable, compact, connected communities. But also a big part of that is to also make sure that we uh, ramp up our investments in transit to help people get around, uh, making sure our streets are safe for active transportation, and that we electrify our transportation systems. Um, because that's the biggest driver of climate pollution in the province is fossil fuels used in transportation. But also we can make those homes and buildings more energy efficient to help people save money by saving uh, energy and reducing the amount of emissions from our buildings as well. And then finally, we can help industry uh, reduce their carbon emissions as well. Things like, you know, um, fuel switching for still furnaces to become electric, for example, or to have more bioproducts and biomaterials uh, being used for, um, let's say, plastics in the automotive industry. There's a huge range of solutions that can help Ontario have a prosperous, successful economy by taking advantage of the opportunities in the new climate economy to create new, better jobs for people. And quite frankly, you know, living in clean, affordable communities just makes life more enjoyable for people. And so, you know, I think we can take this challenge we face 
and turn it into some opportunities to improve people's lives. Mike, we've um, just had a little bit of a technical problem here, so we've lost our other two guests momentarily. I did want to talk about uh, the costs, the social costs um, and to our governments on all levels. If we don't start uh, taking work seriously to the effects of climate change, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. When I first came into office, I asked the financial accountability officer if he could do as what the costs own. This decade alone, um, the estimated could be an additional $6 billion, and that will rise to $60 billion over the next two decades due to extreme weather events. So, you know, rainfall, heat, etc. So this is going to have a real pocketbook effect to personalize it for people. The average homeowner, $1,000 a year. And as Dr. Feltmate said in his opening comments, we are seeing increased flood risk in, in Ontario. So that's a serious cost for folks. I think when it comes to fires this summer, there were a few days that the greater Toronto area had some of the worst air quality in the world due to the fires in northern Ontario and, and western uh, in BC. And that led to an uptick in hospital em- uh, emissions for people with asthma and other illnesses. This is having a real impact on people's health and on their pocketbooks. And the best way to address that is to reduce climate and protect the nature that protects us. Minute left. So 30 seconds to both Dr. Feltmate and David Crombie. Doctor, go ahead. Yeah, I just got so yeah. uh, hopefully this isn't redundant, but I can tell you just one other point on the cost of flooding uh, relative to residential housing. For Canada as a whole, and this would be reflected for Ontario, uh, impacted communities over the last 10 years uh, is um, is minus 8.2 percent enough to deal with flooded basements. The actual sold price of homes has realized an average reduction of 8.2 percent in flood impacted communities. And David Crombie, over to you. Well, thanks very much. Uh, let me let me just limit my comments to 413. 413 is simply the wrong way to go. It's a, it's a very bad idea. It's one that's been rejected. And I think no matter which part party you belong to politically, people should get out and vote and make sure they're voting for someone who's to 413 because it will cause harm. And we, we don't we don't need to avoid it if we if we actually make the right choice. So the right choice start, begins, I think, on June 2nd with the election. This has been a very informative conversation and obviously very necessary to uh, to southern Ontario and across the rest of the province as well. I thank you all for your time. Thank you very much. David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, chair of Friends of the Golden Horseshoe, Dr. Blair Feltmate, head of the Intact Centre for Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo, and Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party. Jane for Libby, it's been a blast this last week, but it's back tomorrow for Free for All Friday, so make sure you tune in and grab a phone line after the noon news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.